Good morning, church. It is great to see you guys. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. For those of us joining our online community, we want to thank you for joining us as well. We just want to say hi to you guys. Let me invite you up front to grab your Bibles, jump to the book of John chapter 10, the gospel of John chapter 10. Listen, if you didn't bring a Bible or you don't have a Bible, please, please, please raise your hand. One of our ushers would love to bring you a Bible. This is a gift that we'd like to give you. Uh, It is yours to have and to keep. We truly desire that everybody has a Bible that they have of their own. They can follow along, circle, highlight, take notes, and study it throughout the week. If you're here today, we are in week three of a four-week series entitled Vox. Now, Vox is a music term that literally means voice, and this series is a culmination of what we felt God was calling us to in 2018 as a church, that we were going to focus on growing in our relationship with God, and I can't think of a better way or a more important way to grow in our relationship with God than to hear God's voice know God's voice, and respond to God's voice. Week one, the message, uh, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 3. It was really kind of a big introduction for this series. And we talked about purpose, posture, and preparation. That Samuel in the temple, that he had a posture where he could hear from God, that he was prepared to hear from God, and that he listened on purpose. Last week, we had a great time interviewing Dr. Scott Booth in a message that we entitled Intersections, Learning How God Speaks, Learning the Different Intersections of, of Our Time with God. Today, we're going to ask and address the question, how does one know God's voice? How does one know God's voice? And next week, I know it's Memorial Day weekend. I know it is on the church calendar nationwide, one of the three lowest attended Sundays of the year. But I want to set the stage for you up front, maybe give you a little incentive to, if not be here, at least check it out online. We are flying one of my very, very, very closest friends in from Denver, Colorado. Jeff Manis is coming in with two of his staff members from Element Church, church of about 1,800 people in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He is the author of a book entitled Because You're Called, Learning to Identify Your Calling in Ministry and in Christ. Uh, he is actually in the middle of his second book right now. He's an awesome, he truly is one of my favorite preachers to listen to. And I am thrilled to get to spend four days with him and two of his staff members. They're going to be with our staff for a few days doing some collaborating. And Jeff is going to preach next week a message that I cannot wait for you to hear which is going to address how we respond to the voice of God. But today, we are going to be asking and answering the question, how does one know the voice of God? And what I want to tell you up front is that there are two answers that are mutually inclusive. They go hand in hand that we're going to study and learn about today, that we can know God's voice in two ways that work together. We're going to be in John chapter 10, and we're going to study the scriptures, specifically one story, one parable that Jesus is going to tell about a, a shepherd. Now, Jesus, I want to give you some context of Jesus and his conversation. In John chapter 9, if you study that, if you spend some time in it this week, you're going to learn a story, or you're going to learn about a story of a man who was born blind. Jesus, as he's walking through town with his disciples, on the Sabbath, he comes across a man who'd been blind from birth, and he has this incredible encounter with this man, and he says, what do you you want from me? And he says, I just want to be able to see. 
Jesus will reach down and he'll collect some dust and he'll spit in the dust and in his hands he'll make mud and he'll wipe the mud on this man's eyes and he'll send him to the pool of Siloam to wash his eyes and there he'll come back from the pool able to see. He'll go to the pool relying on somebody to lead him by the hand to the water. He'll wash his face in the pool of Siloam and he'll come back of his own volition and his own ability to see. The Pharisees see this, and instead of celebrating this miracle of God, they challenge Jesus and question the whole thing. They are more concerned about the religious law that they believe Jesus broke, which was healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus will challenge multiple times, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? Is it wrong to heal, to help? If one of you had a cattle that had gone astray and it had fallen in a hole, would you leave it until the next day or would you go and rescue it? Jesus challenges the Pharisees and their religiosity multiple times, This time, though, instead of confronting Jesus, they want to call Jesus out publicly in front of everybody through this man, his testimony, and his parents. So they bring this man into the synagogue, which is one of the local places of worship in these villages. And they say, hey, tell us, what happened to you? Were you really born blind? He said, I was. And they talk amongst themselves. They bring him back. They ask him again, look, we know that the guy you're talking about He's just a liar. Tell us what really happened. He's like, man, guys, I'm telling you. I was blind, but now I can see. I don't know, I don't know what you want from me. He goes out again, and they call his parents. There's some significant social ramifications at stake here. So bringing the parents to the table, they ask him, hey, tell us, is this really your son? They say, he is. Was your son really born blind? Yes, he's been blind since birth. Well, tell us then, do you believe that he can see and that this was a miracle of God? And the parents knowing the social ramifications for them, you see, if they answer yes, then they are in direct conflict with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that time, and they run the risk of being excommunicated from the community of faith, not just being kicked out of the synagogue, but if you're kicked out of the synagogue, if you're excommunicated, the social ramifications are significant. It affects your ability to work. It affects your ability to maintain relationships. People in proximity will move away from you because of the social stigma that is now attached to your name, having been collectively disciplined and kicked out of the synagogue. So they go and they say, well, look, why don't you go ask him yourself? He's of age to give you an answer. In other words, the age of accountability is 13. It's the age in which they believe you become an adult, which is why they celebrate bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs at the age of 13. And they're able to then, as an adult, give an account or a testimony of themselves. So the parents confirm, yes, this is our son. Yes, he was born blind. Yes, we see that he can see now. Go ask him how. So they bring him back a third time. And they ask him again, tell us, is this what happened? And he said, guys, guys, guys. I don't know that you know that I know. I'm not sure that we get that. We're on the same page. Listen, and it's one of the most famous lines in all of Scripture. It's been in hymns both old and new. I was once blind, but now I see. Jesus hearing what they're doing to this man, that they have a public hearing in the synagogue that they're calling him out, is going to address head on the lies, the religiosity, and the poor leadership on the parts of these Pharisees, but he does so in a brilliant word picture. As an oratorical device, Jesus takes these beautiful pictures and he paints on this canvas with bright colors these illustrations that people can identify with, that they can understand. A lot of what Jesus teaches is agriculture and farming. Very familiar to all, rich and poor, 
Jew and Gentile. Everybody in this Asia Minor area that Jesus spends most of his time doing ministry is very aware of, of this kind of commerce. It was prominent for him in small villages and in large cities. So Jesus is going to now address some things in John chapter 10. And as he does, I want to tell us, he's going he's to start to talk about a shepherd and a sheep. But before we jump into this passage, I want to give us a little bit of culture and context because I truly believe, and you've heard me say it before if you've been here any length of time, that the more we understand culture and context, the better we are able to understand and apply it to our lives. So I want to give us some culture and context about what we're going to read so that it'll help make some sense of what we're going to study today. Jesus is addressing a group of people that totally get the imagery of, of having a flock of either sheep or goats or cattle. And he's talking to them about a shepherd. Now what they would do is they would have in these villages communal living. People would have their own homes, but they would share collectively everything together, which is where we see in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, this brilliant word picture of people selling off their possessions and giving to each as they had need, and they had everything in common. One of the things that they had in common, even though individual families would have had their own flock, anywhere from 3 to 12 or more, depending on the wealth of that family in that community, they would, these shepherds in each family would go out by day, they would find the greenest pasture and the place where there was water, and they would lead their sheep to, uh, to, 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 to the pasture so that they could, they could eat and they could drink. At night, in these small villages, all the shepherds would bring their flocks in collectively, and they would put them in what was known as a communal pen or a sheepfold. These sheepfolds were built around three and a half to four feet high using large rocks or large stones. Most times they were built in the form of a rectangle. Sometimes they were built in the form of a circle. Now what a shepherd would do is as they were bringing and leading the sheep back into the sheepfold, they didn't have a way of marking them. They didn't have cattle brands or they didn't have uh, uh, marks on the ear, ear markers that would delineate whose sheep belonged to whom. And so these sheep then all look alike. They're all furry, they're all smelly, they're all about the same size. What they would do then is they would bring them into the sheep pit from the infancy when this baby ewe was coming up, a shepherd would spend a lot of time with the sheep. He would name each individual sheep and he would have a specific tone of voice he would use and a call. And he would use that over and over and over again. So based on proximity, he, he, he begins to, to lead the sheep. So at an early age, they identify the shepherd by his voice, by his unique call, and they come to understand their name. So as they are all ushered in, in fact, I have a picture I'd like to show you. It'll come up here. This is a, a modern sheepfold, but that is a very close depiction then of what a sheepfold might look like in a smaller village in the Bethlehem area where Jesus would have been teaching. You would have a shepherd that would bring all these sheep in collectively. Each shepherd would bring their flock of sheep in, and then they would either, one of two things, would take turns at night, and one shepherd would lay on the ground. Notice there's not a gate there. They would use their body as a gate to keep sheep from coming in or going out or to keep people from taking the sheep. The other instance in more wealthy communities is they would hire what they called a watchman and this watchman would be a hired hand that would go out at night. He would sleep during the day and go out at night 
for the sole purpose of keeping watch over the flock. Now, the responsibility of these shepherds was to not only care for and to nurture these sheep, but it was to go out in advance and to look for the greenest pastures that they could lead them. It was to protect them from any predators that would come, lions and bears and wolves and those things. It was also to protect them from anybody outside of their community that would attempt to steal or rob them of their flock to take their sheep. So they would literally lay down in front of the sheep pen or the sheep fold So that the sheep, they would keep an eye on them. They would watch over them. They would listen for the sounds. They had a staff. They had a sling. Uh, You see, some of the greatest leaders throughout Scripture were shepherds. Samuel was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. You'll see these individuals who lead, and they lead well. As they laid down then, in the morning, all the shepherds from the village would leave their house, and they would come to the sheepfold together. And collectively, they would begin calling their sheep by name with a unique and a distinct call. And the sheep then would divide up very naturally, very organically, would respond to the voice of the shepherd and would come out of the sheepfold and would follow their shepherd to the pasture each day. That's the backdrop that we are going to be studying from today. In John chapter 10, we're going to read 10 verses together, 1 through 10. We're going to study this, and hopefully, collectively, you'll see in the end two unique ways in which we know God that are inclusive of one another and that are imperative for us. Father, as we go into a time of studying your word, I pray that you would ready us, that you would open our hearts, that you would prepare our minds. I pray that as your word goes out, that it will not return void. And I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would be words that would honor you and glorify you, that I would preach with authenticity and integrity today. And that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, well, let's jump in today. We've got a lot of work to do. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. With what I just shared with you as the backdrop, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Some of your translations, older translations would say, verily, verily, or uh, I say it and I say it again. The Gospel of John is unique in many ways. One of the ways in which it's unique is that John records Jesus as challenging what had been cultural norm by stating uh, something that was taboo. So he would say something like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And here Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Two things that we need to pay attention to. One, Jesus is pointing out that this is truth. Because the obvious would be that what they're hearing outside of what he's about to share is the opposite of truth. The second thing is if you go to the original language and you study that word truth, it's where we get the same word for amen. And amen means be it so. Amen means I'm in complete agreement. What Jesus is using as a literary device is an opportunity to encourage people to really pay attention. I do this. I do this often. In fact, when I'm preaching and I really want you to get something, I'll say something like, hey guys, lean in. Lean in. You got to get close. Make sure you can hear this. That's my way of saying, don't miss this. You got to catch this. This is important. When Jesus says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, or I tell you the truth, what he's saying is, lean in. Don't miss this. You've got to catch this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. This is urgent. This is important. Anyone who sneaks over the wall, And you might want to circle the word sneaks because I'm going to ask you a question about that in a minute. Anyone who sneaks over this four-foot wall 
of a sheepfold, rather than going through, you might want to circle that as well, going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. The Pharisees don't know what's about to hit him, but Jesus in his brilliance is literally calling the Pharisees thieves and robbers. I assure you that as we read this, you're going to see that they don't take too kindly to, to this realization that Jesus is referring to them as thieves and as robbers. What he's also doing is he is setting the groundwork for something that he is going to use to fundamentally transform the rest of the gospel message in the gospel of John. He is going to set the framework now that allows us to see that he is the shepherd and that he is the gatekeeper and that he is the watchman and that he is going to lay down his life for his sheep. So they're listening to this. They're identifying a word picture that they know so well in community, whether they own sheep or not, they see them every day, they smell them every day, they pass by them every day. They get this culturally. The question is, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of the sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief or a robber. But the one, verse 2, but the one who enters through the gate, and we're going to see cultural reference to this in John 14, 6, when Jesus identifies himself as the gate. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not around me, not over me, not sneaking over the wall, but through me. John 14, 6, if you want to cross-reference that. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The question that we have to ask is the question Jesus was trying to address with the people that were listening. And he's saying, the people that you allow to influence you in your life, are they going about it in a way that honors God? Or are they going around God to deceptively speak into your life? Are they speaking to your life trying to rob you and to steal from you? To steal? And maybe it's not even physical gain, but it could be emotional gain. Are they robbing you emotionally? Are they stealing from you spiritually? Are they taking from you relationally? You see, anybody who goes through Jesus does so as the gatekeeper in a way that honors him. And it is his responsibility to ensure that he vets whoever speaks into our lives, that they're speaking truth and love. That's why the Apostle Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is holy, whatever is lovely, whatever is right, whatever is admirable, if anything is pure or righteous, think on these things. Jesus vets everyone that speaks into our lives if they go through the gate. The problem is, all too often, instead of focusing on the gate, we're more concerned around the surrounding walls and the people that are trying to climb over the walls to steal and to destroy our lives. How do people get in to influence your life? Are they climbing walls or are they going through in a way that honors God? Verse 3, the gatekeeper, now this is the hired hand, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, the shepherd, and the sheep recognize his voice. There it is. Would love for you to circle that they recognize his voice. This is one of four times that Jesus is going to use the word voice in just 16 verses. So literally, every quarter that you read in 16 verses is a reference to Jesus' voice, to the shepherd's voice. It's repeated because it's important. Anything that's important for us and our children or us and our marriages or us and our relationships is often repeated. Repeated. 
We want to make sure that people get it, that they understand it, that they can live with it, and that they have an opportunity to ask questions. Jesus doesn't repeat this by mistake. He repeats this on accident, that he has a voice. If you read in the New International Version, the NIV, it says, Jesus said... And Jesus said over 300 times in the New International Version, it says in the, New, in the New Testament that Jesus said. Jesus spoke over 300 times. It's referenced. That's important for us because we need to understand that there is the voice of God that clearly goes out. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, we talked about it last week, that in the Old Testament, God spoke in in a lot of different ways, but primarily through a prophet. But now, through Jesus, God's voice has gone out. When you ever hear me say that I believe that the Word of God is active and alive, and it's still being written in our hearts today, it's not that it's being added to. It's that when we, that when we inherit it, that when we adopt it, that we make it our own, that these truths of God, these words of God come alive in us. We hear God's voice most often through His Scripture. And so if it says that Jesus said over 300 times, and if here Jesus references the fact that he has a voice that he uses four times in 16 verses, and we would argue that we don't hear the voice of God, I have to ask the question. I read again today in my own devotion times how Jesus is the same, that God never changes. If God never changes and he spoke then, then we have to assume he speaks now. So if we're in a place in our own faith, in our own lives, where we don't know the voice of God, we know that he speaks because his word tells us so. We know that we speak, that he speaks because there's countless eyewitness testimonies to those who hear God's voice. But if we don't hear God's voice, he hasn't moved or changed, then we have to ask ourselves, what keeps us from hearing God's voice? There's a thing called sensory overload. I don't know much about it. I'm generally the one creating the sensory. <laughs> My wife, Stacy, is uh, a green gold introvert, if you know anything about color works. Uh, she's very structured, very disciplined, very organized, uh, amazing. And, and as an introvert, she likes this thing called silence. Wow. I'm not familiar with it. There are moments in our marriage and moments in our family where Stacy will literally get overwhelmed with the I call it fun. She calls it chaos. In our living room or our kitchen or wherever we're at, and you will see her physically get up and remove herself from the room. And I'm thinking, man, what did we do? Well, we didn't do anything wrong. What she's doing is she just needs a moment to collect her thoughts and to collect herself because she's had too, there's too much. There's too, many, there's too many things going on. Sensory overload. There's too much noise. There's screaming babies. There's a big, fat, huge dog in the middle of the room. And then we have a dog as well. And there's, there's, there's a lot of wrestling. There's just chaos. We got kids that are jumping off couches. And her rule is don't jump on the couch. And that's great until she walks out of the room. And I walk by and the kids jump on my back. And I try to get mad at them. I'm like, you know better than to jump on the couch. That's so cute. And she, you know, so she, just, it's, just, it's just chaos. And then for my daughter's ninth birthday, I gave her the greatest gift any father could give a child. I gave her a Nerf gun that was a semi-automatic that fires like 50 rapid, rapid fire bullets. And I gave all the other kids just a single shot Nerf gun. And so they literally build through the house. My daughter thinks that she is uh, uh, from, from, from Mockingjay. What's the girl's name? Somebody tell me. 
Katniss. My daughter thinks she's Katniss, and she's got this Nerf, Nerf bow. And when they literally go around, we have Nerf wars. I can be sitting there at the kitchen getting some water. I turn around, I just get, I get sniped in the head with a, with a Nerf dart. I think it's hilarious. My wife, she doesn't appreciate it so much. Our house is like an active war zone with Nerf bullets all the time. It is amazing. I love my family. I love my house. But for those people who think that being loud all the time is really hard to deal with, you got to get away. You got to find some peace and quiet so you can collect your thoughts. And sometimes my wife feels like she can't even breathe sometimes when there's so much chaos. I'm like, how can you not breathe? This is awesome. She just has to walk away and just go, oh, God help. (laughs) Is it that we don't hear God's voice because we have way too much going on? That there's too much sensory overload? That there's too many other voices competing with God's voice? That we don't take time to walk out of the chaos just to collect our thoughts and be alone with Jesus. If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he never changes. He spoke, then he speaks now, and he forever will speak. But we're not hearing the voice of God. Then we have to ask ourselves, why aren't we hearing the voice of God? The problem doesn't lie with him. The problem lies within us. So it says here, Verse 3, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice. How do they recognize his voice? I said it at the onset, but I want to repeat this. They come to recognize his voice because as baby ewes, there's close proximity between the shepherd and the sheep. Because as baby ewes, there's an intimate relationship that's being built where the shepherd will give the sheep a name, and that name will be repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again. So because of proximity, because of intimacy, and because of the amount of time they spend together, the sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd. It says, the second part of verse 3, he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. This is important. Two things. He calls them by name. In a moment, when Jesus identifies himself as the shepherd, and that we are the sheep, we have to ask two things. One, sheep are stupid animals. They are really insufficient to care for their own needs. They are top-heavy. They have a really low center of gravity. They're dumb. If one sheep jumps off the side of a cliff and dies, and there's no shepherd to watch out for them, the sheep will literally, one after the other, just start jumping over the side of the cliff to their death, because they follow blindly. They need somebody to care for them, to take them to the grass, to take them to the water, to cut their hair for them, to nurture them. God could have used it. God could have said that we're animals. He could have said we are elephants. He could have said, I prefer that God would have said that we were lions. God could have said anything, but he said, my people are like sheep being led astray. I'm not asking about that one. I'm not a smart man, God, but I see what you did there. The second thing, not only does he know us intimately by name, the second thing is it says that he leads them out. Any good shepherd isn't going to force us out. Any good shepherd isn't going to misappropriate their authority and power and abuse us. Any good shepherd isn't going to ask us to go places that they haven't gone before us. Notice that? He leads them out. The shepherd would go in advance to locate the pasture that they were going to go to that day, come back for the sheep and lead them out. And the shepherd is always willing to lay down his life for his sheep. After he gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, which I just said, and they follow him because they know his voice. You can always tell 
where the sheep are going and who they're following by the trail that they leave behind them. Because of how they walk, how they, how they, it's almost like ducks. They have a formation. The ducks will fly in a V. They'll travel together. And you can look and you can see if they're just wandering around, we can assume that they don't have a shepherd to follow. But if they're walking in formation, they are following the shepherd. If you want to know who you're following, all you have to do is look at the trail that you're leaving behind you. If you want to know who you're following, look at the trail that your checkbook leaves behind. If you want to know who you're following, look at the trail that your social media accounts leave behind. If you want to know who you're following, look at the relationships that you leave behind. Look at the trail behind you. If you want to know who you're following, Look at, the, look at the words that come out of your mouth. If you want to know who you're following, just examine your life and ask yourself, am I like a sheep that's out wandering around with no one to follow, or am I following the wrong person to the wrong place that ultimately leads to my own harm and my own death? Because the good shepherd leads us to green pastures. The good shepherd leads us to peace. The good shepherd leads us to a place of, of, of look at Psalm 23. The shepherd leads me beside calm waters. If you want to know who you're following, all you have to do is look at the trail behind your life. Probably one of the hardest challenges I'll give you this morning. If you're following Jesus, then the trail of money that you're leaving behind you will be a clear example of that. If you're following Jesus, then the post that you're posting on your social media account will be a clear trail, a clear evidence of that. If you're following Jesus, the relationships that you have will be a clear example of that. After he gathered his own flock, he walks out ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. The other thing that I want to talk about, think about this picture at the sheepfold and you've got these shepherds that are coming out of their homes into the sheepfold and they're each calling their own flock by name with their own unique sound. The sheep will follow that shepherd because they are familiar with it the most. My children love to play this game with our dog, Baxter. We've got a pretty large one-and-a-half-year-old uh, yellow lab, Baxter. And we got him. In fact, uh, us and, and some friends of ours were the first two that got to go and pick out the puppies from this litter. Caden, my son, was, this is back in November, a year and a half ago. My son was living with me at the time uh, as we were transitioning from Minnesota to here. We went, and my son said the dog chose us. And I think he did, but it just so happened that our dog had the biggest paws of the whole litter, and he has followed suit. He is giant. I told my wife, I said, you know, they take on the persona of their masters, right? That's why he's so strong and so handsome, and she just laughs and walks out of the room. My girls love to play this game. They'll ask me to have Baxter sit in the middle of the kitchen. They'll go to one side with food in their hand and toys. And they'll say, come here, Baxter. Come on, Baxter. My five-year-old and three-year-old don't call him Baxter. They call him Basker. Come here, Basker. Come here, Basker. And they, they get so excited. I will stand on the other side opposite them in the kitchen. And regardless of the amount of food that they have or the toys that they have or the energy that they possess, as soon as he hears me call his name, Baxter, come here. He will abandon the girls every time, and he'll come and he'll sit at my feet. Because as a puppy, I spent the most time with him. I played with him. I trained him. I held him. He heard my voice. I taught him how to sit, how to stay, how to lay down, how to shake. I sent him up to Pheasant Bonanza, where for five weeks he was trained in the art of 
flushing and fetching birds that I shot because I don't miss. And he, <laughs> he brings them back and we spend a ton of time together, Baxter and I. And so regardless of all the other noise going on, when he hears my voice, he responds. My question is, have you spent enough time with God that no matter what else is going on, you hear his voice and you respond? In the same way that I am the master of my dog, have you allowed God to be the master of your life, to care for you and love you, to lead you, to teach you and instruct you? Verse 5 is perhaps one of the hardest parts of this passage to teach. It says, they won't follow a stranger, the sheep and the shepherd. They won't follow a stranger. Instead, they will run from him because they don't know his voice. Let me read this in succession and let me explain this. I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. But they won't follow a stranger. Instead, they will run from him because they don't know his voice. What Jesus is referring to is the Pharisees. What Jesus is talking about are wolves in sheep's clothing. What Jesus is talking about are the religious leaders that have not gone through the gate of salvation, that have not gone through Jesus Christ, but have instead scaled the walls and have begun to try to steal people. If you want to know what happens when a stranger enters a sheep pen, if I had a video to show you and they started calling these sheep, what you would see is chaos. You would see division. You would see these sheep beginning to run away, run around, and it creates absolute division in the pen until the shepherd comes back in and calls the sheep by name. This is true even of people that they recognize by sight but don't recognize their voice. Church, this is true of people that we recognize by sight and by voice but that teach strange ideas or that lead you to go to strange places. What Jesus is talking about in church culture, in culture I, I don't know how else to say this to you, is that we have got to be careful of people who come into the church with strange voices or strange ideas that want to lead us to strange places. Because if you go through the gate, which is Jesus Christ, then the meta-narrative from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the meta-narrative is restoration. That God gave everything from Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, to the fall of man, all the way to Revelation 22, when we see the, the redemption because of Jesus' ultimate blood sacrifice and atonement. God's meta-narrative, his ultimate story is redemption for all people. His story is a great big love story, and the story is written to us, about us, for us. Anybody who comes into the, sheep, into the sheepfold, into the pen, through Jesus, will come with a story and with a, with, with, with a testimony and with an intention of restoration and love. But if anybody comes into the sheepfold, even if we recognize them by look, but they have a strange idea or a strange voice, it will create chaos and division. If you want to know if what somebody is teaching in a church is of God or not, you don't have to look any further than whether or not the church is unified or divided. Any church that is divided is divided because there's a stranger in the sheepfold. And if not a stranger, a sheep in wolf's clothing, or a wolf in sheep's clothing, 
even if we look like they, we know them, they're teaching strange ideas that are not consistent with Christ. Be careful. Be careful. Jesus was addressing the Pharisees head on. They know you. They know your voice, but they're teaching strange ideas. You guys are little more than wolves in sheep's clothing. And when you step into the flock, it creates division. Verse 5. Verse 6. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. And so he explained it to them this way. I tell you the truth. There it is a second time. Lean in. Don't miss this. I am the gate for the sheep. Oh, my word, church. This just moved from application and to implication. This just moved from looking at Jesus' story, trying to follow along to figure out where he was going with this, to, oh, wait a minute, this has direct implication in my life. A shepherd's responsibility is to care for the sheep, to nurture the sheep, to clip the sheep, to take the sheep in advance, to go out and find green pastures, to lead the sheep, not push or force or drive out or, or lead to their own devices, but to lead the sheep into green pastures, to lead them to water, to protect them, to keep them from going over a cliff, to keep them from their predators using a slingshot and rocks that they would, they would even be willing with their, with their, to give up their lives with a shepherd's staff, a sword and rocks. They would lay down their own life to defend the sheep. The shepherd were also responsible for disciplining the sheep. And we're going to talk about that here at the end. Jesus just said, wake up. It is my job to care for all of your needs. It is my job to lead you as we spend time in proximity together, as we spend time in intimacy together. You're going to learn to trust me. You're going to learn to know my voice. You're going to learn to respond to me so that when I lead you, you can follow and you can know with absolute certainty that I have your best in mind. My question is if Jesus says that he is the shepherd that he is the gatekeeper, that he lays down his life for us doing all that I just mentioned, why are we so busy trying to do his job? Why are we trying to lead our own lives? Jesus has already gone out before us and he's prepared the pastures. He just wants us to follow him into the green land. Why are we so busy worrying about where we're going to get water? Jesus has already gone to the well. He dug up the well. He built the well, he put the bucket in the well and pulled out all the water, living water that never runs dry. Why are we so worried about where we're going to get our water? Well, here's one. Here's one I struggle with. Why are we so busy defending ourselves? Sheep are unable, are unable to defend themselves. They don't even recognize danger half the time. Unless somebody comes into the sheepfold that's not their shepherd. But leave it to somebody to say anything against us, and we take up defense immediately. I'm the biggest offender. Somebody says something about me, whether it's true or not, quite possibly what they think I believe or what they think I said or something about my family, and I want to defend myself. According to Scripture, the Bible, Jesus says, look, if somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. Let them do it again. Somebody takes something from you, give them the shirt off your back. Somebody, somebody starts mocking you. We're starting in two weeks, guys. In, 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 yeah, two weeks from today. We're starting a nine-week series I could not be more excited about. It's called Nine, and we're going to spend all of June and all of July looking at the Beatitudes, which is how we respond when the, when the world is responding this way. This is how we're called to respond. Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you 
and mock you and say all kinds of evil against you in my name. He says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It is not our job to defend ourselves. We sure want to, but it's not our job. And you know what happens when we defend ourselves? We end up looking guilty. I'm learning the lesson of letting people run their mouth and it come full circle and bite themselves in the butt. Like my dog. They want to say anything about our church or about me or my family. They look stupid like my dog just chasing his tail. And then you get a hold of it and my dog goes, what? <laughs> but then he does it again. When people want to say things against you, let them chase their tail. Because your shepherd is the one who defends you. Your shepherd is the one who defends your honor. He's the one who laid down his life for you. Quit trying to do his job for you. Let him be the master of your life. Verse 8. All who came before me. I love this. I love Jesus. He gets all up in their grill. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. In other words, they're busters. They're posers. They're wannabes. They're has-beens and never were's. They're cheap imitations at best. Jesus says, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Now, why did he say true sheep? This is going to be some hard-hitting truth as well, church. Again, he's talking to a group of religious people and religious leaders that say that they are sheep, but they don't follow the shepherd. They follow the shepherd of religion. They follow the shepherd of relationships. They follow the shepherd of, uh, of, of financial gain. They follow the shepherd of, of any of their own desires. True sheep not only know the shepherd, but they will follow the shepherd. There are far too many people sitting in churches across America right now that are in the sheepfold, pretending to be a part of the flock, but they don't know the voice of God because they're too busy following and chasing after the voices that are cheap imitations. The true followers of Jesus. Jesus is going to talk about this again later on, isn't he? One of his last illustrations. He's going to talk about the sheep and the goats. Right hand is left hand. They're going to come to me and say, well, Lord, when did we see you naked or thirsty or hungry or in jail? And Jesus is going to say, look, y'all, my, my message from Genesis 3 on is restoration. Whatever you've done to restore the least of these, you've done it unto me. And if you haven't, then you don't really know me. If you care more about keeping contempt in your heart for people than you do about freedom in your faith, then you don't really know Jesus. There are some of you here this morning in your relationships at some level that have chosen for far too long to carry around contempt for people. And it's robbing you of freedom in your faith. If Jesus could kneel down at the Last Supper and wash the feet of Judas Iscariot, who he knew in advance was going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, yet Jesus takes the lowest position of any servant of all time, washing his nasty, disgusting, corn-filled feet. And then he's going to share a common cup with him, and he's going to bless him, and he's going to love on him, even though he knows that Judas is going to betray him. If Jesus does not choose to carry contempt, but demonstrates freedom in our faith, 
How then in the world can any of us at any level carry contempt for anybody? Jesus, when he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't say, Father, forgive the ones who deserve it. Forgive them all. As he hung between two thieves, forgive them, Lord. The people that were going to murder him, forgive them, Lord. His own disciple who had betrayed him not once, not twice, but three times denied that they were even in relationship. Forgive him, Lord. And then what does he do? He comes back so that he can restore Peter. The meta-narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is restoration. Quit walking around our community with contempt in your heart for people. Start living out your faith in Jesus as hard as it is. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying to tear down all the walls. And to not have boundaries. That's not what I'm saying. We have to establish healthy God-honoring boundaries because those offenders, unless they repent, fall on their face before Jesus and turn from their wicked ways, they're likely to what? Re-offend. Our job is to build those parameters and allow Jesus to be the gate that we vet all things that we hear, see, and do through. They can try to climb the wall all they want. Jesus is going to come in and he's going to start chopping off limbs. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that offensive to you? Jesus said, I didn't come to comfort you. I came, I came with a sword in my hand. I mean, y'all are going to be comforted, but there's some work to be done. Am I preaching good this morning? Because frankly, we're in a community that has had far too many church splits and we don't talk about it. Y'all need to know. If you're watching online this morning, this is being recorded. You can look at it. I choose as the pastor of Country Bible Church to forgive anybody that has offended us or wronged us in any way. And if we, as a body of believers, have offended you in any way, known or unknown, before God, I ask that you forgive us. And my prayer is that we learn to live collectively. My prayer is that as we learn to forgive one another, we also learn to coexist in a community where people need Christ. Because the sooner that people see us choosing to fulfill our faith rather than carry our contempt, we will live the testimony of Jesus, meta-narrative from Genesis 3, Adam falling in the garden, to Revelation 22, restoring the churches unto himself. Restoration is the end game, church. As your pastor, my goal is complete restoration. That's it. That's it. All right. I didn't plan on talking about that today. (laughs) I'm glad I did too. All who came before me are posers, but the true sheep didn't listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. He says it a second time. Those who come in through me, I just talked about this, parameters and boundaries that come through Jesus. Those who come in through me will be saved. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now listen to this. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. This is an axiom throughout the Old Testament about coming and going and the freedom that we have in our faith. Verse 10. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Let me dispel a myth. Rich does not mean wealth. Rich is like one of Joyce Hudson's cheesecakes. (laughs) You take a bite and it's in your blood sugar before you know it. You take a bite and you're like, oh, that, that is satisfying to my toes. I don't even understand how that happened. I need a seat. Dear Jesus. I did not know you could physically love a cheesecake, but I do, Lord. 
Rich means it's, rich means it's complete. Do you see that? Rich means it's complete, that it affects you at every, at every level of your life. That's, that's this word picture. It doesn't mean financial gain. I'm going to ask you all a question. Pay attention. Did your master Jesus Christ have financial riches? Then what makes you think you deserve it? Oh, I'm preaching real good today. <laughs> I've never said that before. I never even thought that before. Jesus told the disciples, don't take anything with you. You take your, your staff and the sandals on your feet. You go and you let me provide for you. Some of you have been providing for yourselves too long. It's time to quit being stingy with what God's given you. Start giving it away. Give it to the church. Give it to the charities. Give it to people. And don't, and don't tell them you gave it. Doesn't need to be about you. It needs to be about Jesus. Had a woman in my office this week. She was at Woodhouse. I think that's where she was. I don't know where she was. She was at a dealership. Getting her oil changed. Older woman comes in and all kinds of damage to her car, like $400, $500 worth. Woman from our church, new in her faith, by the way, came to Jesus November, was one of the ones that raised her hand and said, all to Jesus, I surrender. She overhears this and she goes to the, to the, to the, to the general manager and she says, hey, how much is that woman's bill? Like, what's going on? And he said, why? She said, well, I'm just curious. And so he looks at it, details it, you know, 400, 500 bucks, whatever it was. She said, I don't want you to tell her I did it, but I want to take care of it. And this guy looked at her cross-eyed, like, why would you do that? She said, because I have a father that, that I answer to, and he's speaking to my heart right now, and I have to respond. And he'll take care of me. She didn't have it to give, but she gave it anyway, because she said, he'll take care of me. And she sat in my office a week and said, Pastor, I gave my life to Jesus about eight months ago at this church, and everything about my life is different. It's funny different. Hmm. What are you holding on to it for? And your bills, stop putting stuff on credit. You know, I heard somebody say recently, well, you only live once and you die and you can't take your debt with you either. Yeah, but you know what? Your family's responsible for it. So, I hope y'all come back sometime. (laughs) Like, I love Jesus and I love you. And it is long overdue to have this conversation. Uh, and, and by the way, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> like, y'all, don't, y'all don't believe what I'm saying? Just, just please come to my office with your Bible in hand. Let's talk about it. I had somebody this week say, I hate it when you say that. And I said, show me in the Bible where it says that. <laughs> if a, a thief comes, a robber, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus, he says, I'm the shepherd. And the role of the shepherd is to, is to protect us, to love us, nurture us, lead us, care for us. There's also the role of a shepherd in that they're responsible to discipline us. Even today, if you get a sheep that wants to stray, that wants to go off and do his own thing, follow a voice that isn't the voice of the shepherd. In concern for the sheep, because they want to protect the sheep from harm, that shepherd will go out and he'll grab that sheep and he will literally break one of the front legs of that sheep. 
so that it can't wander off. But he doesn't leave the sheep there. What the shepherd will do then, as he did when the, when the lamb was a little ewe, is he will kneel down and take this now afflicted sheep with a broken limb, and he will pick the sheep up in his arms, and he will carry the sheep everywhere that they go, close proximity to his chest, and he'll talk to that sheep and remind the sheep of his voice. And he'll continue to train the sheep of his voice and the commands and call. And when they get to the green pastures, he'll help the sheep down to feed and he'll take the sheep by the still waters and he'll help the sheep down to drink. And he does it not just to discipline us for the sheer sake of discipline us because he loves us. Maybe you've seen the image of Jesus carrying a lamb. That is an image of our father who cares about us and wants to be in close proximity to us. Let me finish with what I started with. I said, how do we know God's voice? How does one come to know the voice of God? It's really two ways, proximity and intimacy. Proximity and intimacy. I would argue that if you don't hear the voice of God and if you don't recognize the voice of God, it's because you're not in close proximity and you don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Proximity and intimacy. Here's the big so what today. The only way for a person to truly come to know the voice of God is through proximity and intimacy with God. Three years ago, my wife Stacy and I gave birth to, well, she gave birth to Brienne. I was in the room. <laughs> and something strange happened. Oh, as we had kids, different ideas about parenting changed. And, and, and one of the things that we knew early on is that if you talk to the children in vitro, you can actually train a child to recognize and respond to your voice. And so I would do these crazy things. Like I would get on Stacy's belly. And my wife is a small woman, about 5'3", and she's just a smaller stature. When she was pregnant, she was, from the back, you couldn't tell she was pregnant. When she turned sideways, she looked like one of those pop-up cartoon character books. She was all belly. It was a door. I don't, I'm not mocking him. She was, I, loved, I loved having her be pregnant. I'd have more kids. She won't let me. She's all belly. But she, I would literally crawl in bed at night, and I would talk to her. I'd cup her belly, and I'd talk like this to the baby, and I'd use the baby's name, and I'd blow, you know, like do strawberries on her belly. And I don't know that the baby was laughing. I know Stacy was, so it worked. I, like laughing because you're an idiot. But I, so I hear I'm talking to the baby and hoping that when the baby's born, the baby will recognize my voice. When Brienne was born, something changed in their philosophy. I was standing day two in the hospital room, and this nurse, an older nurse, uh, probably in her mid to late 60s, comes in, and she's very stern, very aggressive, very confident in who she is and what she knows. And she comes in, and she says, uh, Stacy is nursing Brienne, and they're, you know, the skin to kin, and she says, Dad, it's time for you to get some skin time. And I looked at her. I didn't even know what she was talking about. She walks up to me. I'm wearing Minnesota Twins baseball shorts, and I'm wearing a spring training shirt, long sleeve spring training shirt. She walks up. She grabs the shirt tail of my shirt, starts pulling it off of my body, and says, you need to do skin time with your daughter. Lift your arms up. I looked at her like she was joking, and she said, sir? I lifted my arms up. She took my shirt off. I have a picture of this, right? Actually, I, I have a picture. I decided I used some filters and judgments. I didn't. Stacy conveniently could. Hey, I wasn't preaching right there. That's not. I can't get you to amen when I say Jesus is Lord, but I say I'm not going to show a half-naked picture of me like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Preach it, pastor. Stacy couldn't find the picture last night. I know where it is. 
that she goes over to my wife. She takes Brienne from her and she hands her to me. And it's just Brienne in her diaper on my bare chest. And she puts a blanket over Brienne. Apparently she's concerned Brienne's going to get cold. Could care less if I get cold. It's in Minnesota. And, but Brienne's coming. And so here I am. She said, now just talk to her. So I'm rocking in this glider and I'm talking to her and I'm singing to her. Same song I sing to all my kids. Go to sleep, baby girl. Daddy really loves you. And I'm just singing to her and holding her. Be in close proximity with her. Let her know my voice. And even now, one of the things that I like to do with my kids is I'll whisper something from across the room. And my kids will say, what? <laughs> and I say, if you don't hear something somebody says, you don't say what. You say, excuse me, what did you say? So I'll whisper again. Excuse me, what did you say? I don't change my tone. My kids have to get closer and closer until they lean into my, my mouth and uh, sit on my lap. And as they lean in, none of them are at this service. So I can say it. I lean in and I say, don't tell anybody, but you're my favorite. <laughs> and I hold them in my arms. Even my 14-year-old son, I still do this. I hold him in my arms and say, man, I love you. Daddy loves you. Some of you this morning, you don't know God's voice because you've been keeping him too far away. The Bible says he's in the small whispers like he did to David in the side of a mountain, like he did to Elijah in the side of a mountain. And he's whispering to us. We're looking for the volcanic eruption. We're looking for the burning bush. And God says, I'm right here. I'm in the still small voice. And he wants us to get closer and closer and closer to proximity and intimacy with him so we can crawl up on his lap and he can take us in his arms. And he can say, you're my favorite. And I love you. Not only do I love you, but I actually like you. I love you. May you know the voice of God through intentional proximity and deliberate intimacy. Amen.